damage and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, because of these things, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so, Father, once more, I just pray, Lord, that we would see the seriousness of your scriptures. Lord, that this is what you have given to your people, to live lives that are holy, that would glorify you. And so, Father, again, just show us these things, make them applicable to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. The last part of verse 1, so that we would know how we ought to walk and to please God. Now, we'll have that desire to be well-pleasing to many people in our life. And, you know, just consider in your life, who is it that you want to be well-pleasing to? Did a little bit of an inventory, and my mother. I want to be well-pleasing to my mother. My mother is a widow. She keeps pretty busy, but nonetheless, she lives by herself. My brother stays there every so often. Terry and I visit my mother about every other week. We go over there usually every other Monday night, and it seems to please her. Last Monday when I was there, it was actually two Mondays when I was there, I always get, well, she always gives us dinner, but nothing's for free. I have to work for the dinner. We'll work for food. And so my little project last Monday was to hang her shower head. Now, I took the old one down. I put the new one up. It took me maybe not even five minutes, and I can kind of see the disappointment in her eyes. She wanted a little bit more, but sometimes there's hard projects. Sometimes they're easy, but she gets excited, and the good thing about it is well-pleasing to mom. She's having surgery this Friday, and I've come to know, I was planning on being there anyway, that it's going to be well-pleasing if her sons be there. I like to be well-pleasing to my wife, and I pray that we do to our spouses. It's why we had a couple's retreat last week, so we can learn how to be a pleasure in each other's lives. To be well-pleasing, well, we'll quickly be well-pleasing to those who can do something for us. You're going to school, you try to be well-pleasing to a teacher to get those good grades, to a boss maybe to get a raise, and well, we have various relationships in our lives for various reasons that we want to be well-pleasing to people, but here we are told that we ought, how we ought to walk to be well-pleasing to God. And again, as a born-again believer, that's the desire, it needs to be the desire of our hearts that we would please God, that we would please God who has done so much for our lives and so much for our eternity. So in our study of this epistle so far, we've seen this church, and we've seen how this church is basically well-pleasing to Paul. We saw in chapter 1, keeping in mind that Paul was only there for a couple of weeks, but he planted a church and got it going in a good direction. He says, well, when he thinks about that, them, he remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and patience of hope, and how those things were manifest in 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 9, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son. And so it was a turning from the idolatry of society and a turning towards the Word of God that excited him. He saw things were going on in this church, that they were not just somebody who superficially called themselves a Christian, but they got down to the fabric of belief. Now, when you turn towards the Word of God, there should be a profound change in your life, and I think that's what excited Paul as he saw that. 
Now, it's that profound change within you that results in a profound change outside, that, that, that you now are a different person. And the first person that should minister to, witness to, has got to be yourself. You've got to be able, if you call yourself a born-again believer, again, not necessarily a Christian. So many people call themselves Christians. When I ask, have you been born again? Is there that point in your life that you can look back and you can see how you used to be and now look today and see how you are and know that the, the difference maker was that day that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Not so much about becoming a Christian because nowhere in here does it say become a Christian. It says, are you born again? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. I'm not saying anything bad about calling yourself a Christian or anything like that, but there's just so many people that use that term and use that term in vain. So those who have turned to God should no longer be seeking to be well-pleasing to themselves or those of the world, but our aspirations should be pleasing to God. It should be our desire and it should be our priority that how can I please God, again, the one who has done so much? If you ask the average person how to be pleasing to God, they would probably look at the keeping of the commandments, the following of his standards. Again, if you went out in the streets and did a survey, and how can you be well-pleasing to God? And they would probably, you know, maybe the Ten Commandments, or maybe they have some favorite commandments, or whatever it might be. Well, that's a lot of commandments. That's quite a few standards. See, the Bible, we have the commandments which make up the ceremonial standards and the moral standards. And there are 613 of them, and we've already looked at the problem that is involved in keeping 613. The bigger problem, remembering 613. Well, if you throw out the ceremonial standards and just look at the moral standards, and I have no idea how many moral standards in relation to ceremonial standards, but nonetheless, there's still a bunch to keep, and I have to keep them all the time. And it was those who thought they were keeping the law who, when Jesus was here, well, they were very displeasing to God rather than well-pleasing to God. Because again, when we start building a relationship with God based upon moral standards, I'll start exalting myself in that. Because I'll start presenting myself that I'm more moral than you are. I'm a better believer because of what I do or maybe because of what I don't do. But you know what? I want to be well-pleasing to God. And so Jesus, he whittled it down for us. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. And after what I just said, enable that to lend weight towards what Christ is saying. Because just as I say, the 613 commandments and the keeping of them all, well, the Jews tried to do that. And they kind of came to the end of themselves. And they were looking for just... What are the two main ones or the one main commandment that I need to do to be right before a holy God? In verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22, it says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the one that we need to focus on? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. You shall love the God, your God with the totality of who you are, with all of who you are. Again, if you're a born-again believer, if your life has been changed, if it has been altered, it's all, as you just sang, for the glory of Him. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He says this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so that's where our focus is to be. Not that we throw the rest out. We don't because we understand what is necessary for morality. And we understand the reason that God gave those ceremonial laws. A lot of them were just simply the pointing towards the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we hold those valuable. We're studying the book of, well, we finished Leviticus last, not last Thursday, but the Thursday before. And now we're in that riveting book of Numbers. You should know better than to smirk now. No, it, it really is. It's, you know, the numbers, you just think of numbers, but that's really not, it's the wandering. It's, it's Israel's trip in the wilderness. And it's something that we need to really pay attention to because, well, I don't want to live my life in the wilderness. I don't want to perish in the wilderness. It's not about the numbers. Well, with God, it's always about the people. I don't know why I'm going there because people keep smirking when I bring that up. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love the Lord? What were the two greatest commandments he gave? To love God with all who you are. And the second was like it, to love your brother as you love yourself. As you, as you, <laughs> if you were with us when we went through the minor prophets, God, he sent the prophet to his people. Why? Because the people were not listening to the word of God. When people do not listen to the word of God, God raised his voice by the sending of a prophet. If they continued to not listen to God through the prophet, he would then send a trial of some sort. But the whole issue, as we were going through our study in the minor prophets, it wasn't so much that they were breaking the law of God, but that they were breaking the heart of God. And again, we've got to make sure that I don't want to break the heart of God. I want to be obedient. I want to be looked down upon him, not as a perfect person because that's impossible, but I simply want to be looked down upon as somebody whose heart beats for the Lord and the things of the Lord. And so if that's the case, then I'm going to be somebody who is, well, spending my time loving the Lord and loving his people. And that being the case, then I'll be well-pleasing to my God. And so, as the Lord is the standard, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, it says, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So, to please God is to be like Christ, and never are we more like Christ when we are exhibiting love. Now, I'm not talking about going into the fellowship area after service, and staring into one another's eyes. And I just love you, man. It's not about that. That's kind of weird. What is true Christian love? Is sacrificing yourself. Stepping outside of yourself. Right next to my office is one of the children's ministry classrooms. And I just kind of walk by there. And just to kind of look in. Because two of my grandchildren are in there. Number one. But just like to see the kids. And kind of walk in. And hey, there's Pastor Mike. And they get excited. And I like when people get excited about me. Because it doesn't happen in here. But those, <laughs> they're pretty naive. But anyway, go in there. And it's, it's good to see them excited. But I'm, I was just kind of. I'll just say this. Because she's not listening. She's teaching kids. But the teacher. Teacher's been there for years. And you just look at them, what are they getting out of that? I mean, you know, just looking at the surface and kind of looking third party, you know, apart from the Lord, we're not paying her any money. I mean, even if she was pilfering the little children's tie, that's only pennies a week and she's not doing that. But what is she getting out of it? 
Well, she's doing it because she loves you. She'll probably never look into your eyes and say that she loves you. Jim may not appreciate that, her husband. But she's exhibiting Christian love by serving the Lord and exercising her spiritual gifts. She's loving God by doing that, and she's loving you. And that's how we exhibit that love, is just simply being obedient to what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And so this concept of laboring love is what we're looking at here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's love that labors, it's love that gets to work. The church at Thessalonica was doing very well for such a young church, such a young church that Paul was there for a very short period of time, but they were a church on fire. They were moving in the direction that God sent them. But the one thing that is common to all churches, regardless of how you're doing, you can always do more. You can always do more. It's always about reaching forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus, never sitting back and resting upon what you have done. It's been said when Paul Revere made his historic ride, he rode through through the villages reporting that the British are coming, the British are coming. And he finally came to the end, and as he got to the end of his path, his mindset was, what more can I do? He went and picked up a musket and joined in in the rebellion. Never can you rest upon what you've done. You've always got to be pushing forward in the things that need to be done. Jesus had something to say to the church at Laodicea that thought it had achieved something. He had threatened to vomit them out of their mouth, out of his mouth, in Revelation 3.17. Why? Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And again, it's the same charge that could be brought against the church in general today especially the church in the United States of America. We just saw the, the Christians in Egypt and the Christians in, in Syria and the Christians in that portion of the area, how they're giving all for their faith, how they're going even to their deaths because of this belief that they have of Jesus Christ and how Christ has altered their lives. And what's the worst that is going to happen to us this coming week? I don't know. What is the worst? It just pales in comparison to that. And these are people who love the Lord and love Him to the end. But the church in America, we so easily fit into this description. You say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. But Jesus said, don't you know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Because you think you've achieved something when in fact you've achieved nothing if you become complacent in your Christian life. Two contrasting opinions here. The church at Laodicea Well, they think they're doing okay and they have need of nothing more, but they need, as Paul says over here in verse 1, to abound more and more. Continue to push forward. Don't think that you stop. It doesn't matter how long you say, because, see, the people that I've seen that have been coming to church the longest or maybe saved the longest, and I'll even give this, born again the longest, I see less of a fire of passion in some of those people than I see some people who even have been recently saved. It's some of the recently saved people that we got to be careful and kind of, I don't mean hold them back, but just be careful as leaders that they just don't really go overboard and to the detriment of their family or other relationships because a lot of times they want to get involved and they want to get involved in everything. My wife and I were kind of like that. We were doing something almost every single day of the week 
And we realize we need to pull back a little bit to devote some time to family. But then again, on the other end of the stick, it's those people who have been saved the longest that are the hardest to get moved, get moving. So many people, you know, I've been there and, well, I've done that. Well, you can never been there and done that. It's always, what has God called of me today? So this is a loving request that Paul makes and not given in the form of a command because he wants it to come from his heart. And so he's asking, church, are you abounding, overflowing, and overflowing continuously in what God has called you to do and who God has called you to be? Because any dead church can fill a building. It takes a live one to fill hearts for the Lord. What exactly are they abounding in? And again, he points it out, 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, just before what we're studying today. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So, how do we continue on in abounding love? Love that abounds more and more. It's got to be practical. I mean, as pointed as Paul is in this, there's got to be some practicality, especially in this area. There's, different, there's definitely concepts that we're able to hold on to and able to do. Well, generally in the scriptures, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Is your gifting stirred up? Is it stirred up? I mean, have you ever gone to the refrigerator and taken some lemonade out and just poured the glass and it's just kind of sour water? What you got to do? You got to stir it up. You got to keep it stirred up so it's just completely, well, it's just completely flavorful. Have you lost your flavor? Have you lost your flavor? If you could just stir it up, stir it up and see what God will do. For a church to overflow with love, each member must exercise their spiritual gifting. And to see how all of this fits together, the spiritual gifting and the concept of love, just look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are the model chapters for spiritual gifting. What happened to spiritual, I'm sorry, for chapter 13? Well, chapter 13 is just so you don't lose perspective in that middle of that teaching of spiritual gifting. It's that great love chapter. Because without love, we've just become a clanging symbol. Last night, no, it wasn't last night. It was a couple nights before. It was in the middle of the night sometime. Neighbor's car alarm went off. In the middle of the night. Uh, 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 uh. And just as I'm irritating you, that's what it was doing to me. It was irritating me. And my wife says, maybe somebody's breaking into a car. We should get up and check that out. I laid there for five minutes, and she never got up and checked it out. <laughs> Finally, the neighbors turned it off, and I went back to bed. But it was something irritating. And you know people who, under the guise of exercising their spiritual gifting, very irritating, very ir irritating, very legalistic, or whatever it might be, but they were just simply void of love. And if you're void of love, you're never going to achieve anything for the Lord because what the Lord achieved upon the cross is the ultimate expression of love. And so how much more so is Jesus exercised, well, salvation for all of mankind, ought I to exercise my gift with a spirit of love, with the spirit of giving of myself for the benefit of others. The more you exercise your gifts, the more humble you become and less of a critic you become. This is why it is a labor of love. 
Secondly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, and let us consider one another. So stir up gifts of God, the gift that God has given you, but also consider one another. And it says here, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Your church will never abound in love if you're not there. If you're not there, you're valued and you're needed. But it doesn't matter how great you are gifted. If you're not at church, if you don't show up, it doesn't do any good. Because again, giftings or the fruit of our ministry is for the purpose of others to come and partake of. Now, if I'm just partaking of my own fruit, then that's very limited. But if I'm partaking of the fruit of everybody, I have a whole orchard, 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 or that thing, you know, a whole bunch of trees. Orchard, I can't say that. But anyway, you know what I mean, to partake of. And if that's the case, then I'm going to have fruit that will provide for my every need. But if I'm not there, not only am I not able to partake of the fruit of the body of Christ, then I'm not able to give of myself as well. The love a church is able to exhibit is in direct proportion to the number of exhibitors. As I've said so many times, we need everybody. Not only do we need everybody, we need everybody exercising their spiritual giftings. Without every member of this church, I don't care who you are, I don't care how you're gifted, I don't care how long you've been saved, or any of those things, if you're not here exhibiting and and exercising your spiritual gifting, then this church will never be all that it can be. It will always be lacking. Thirdly, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Again, just speaking of the Word of God and just the reminder that the Word of God is, the majority of what I do isn't so much teaching, but it's reminding Reminding of things that you've known, reminding you of things that you have heard, reminding you maybe of a place where you've been and you're no longer there that you've got to go back to or you've got to leave from or whatever it might be. And so this is a constant flow of the Word of God into your soul. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, we saw those commandments in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 40. So forget about all the other 611 of them. Let's just focus on those two. How you doing? How you doing? I mean, I don't want you to respond to me. I want you to consider for yourself. How are you doing in the greatest commandment? Are you loving God? Are you, are you being well-pleasing to God? We'll get into even more depth than that. But how are you doing? How are you, how are you doing in loving the brethren? Now, again, if loving the brethren, based upon Christ's standards, is the giving of self, how are you doing in that? I mean, you can't do very well if you're not at church. You can't do very well if you just kind of come in during the first worship song and leave during the closing worship song. God wants us to all integrate together and be part of the fabric of the body. And again, that's the beauty of, of church, is the coming together and having like-minded people. How are you doing? I mean, just two commandments. He's, he's made it real easy to fill you with your, his spirit in order for you to fulfill those commandments. How are you doing? 
How do we love God with all that we are? Well, first, I love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and all of my mind when I'm obedient to him. Again, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. To be sanctified is to be separated from all that is ungodly. Now, there's sancti- to be sanctified and there's sanctification, two forms of the same word, but really there's kind of two ideas there. Because the moment I'm saved, I'm sanctified. I'm separated from this world and the things of the world in the eyes of God. He sees me, he chooses to see, see me, doctrine of justification, just as if I have never sinned. Now, again, I was talking to the men last Wednesday and use this example. If you brought your grandchildren over to my house and they'd been there before, and maybe they broke something or maybe they were rude or something like that, I might think when Cherry tells me, oh, not them again. Well, last week she told me that our grandchildren were coming over and I was kind of excited. And I can't tell you how rude they have been. I can't tell you how many of things of mine that they've come and broke. But I choose to see them just as if they've never sinned because they're my favored grandchildren. And that's how God chooses to look upon you. You've sinned. You've all sinned a blue streak. I know because I have too. But he chooses to see us just as if we have never sinned. And so we're sanctified. We'll, we're pulled apart from the world. We'll, we're pulled apart from those who are going to be judged. But the Bible also uses the term sanctification as the process of those who are sanctified of being further drawn away from ungodliness. It's the discipleship process of our life. As I learn more and more about the Lord, and I become more and more like Jesus Christ, I become less and less like the world and the things of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we are to come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. And I think this is just the perfect illustration for this process of sanctification. To be sanctified is to be moved from the rock pile of waste to one of usefulness. So on the day that you were saved, there were those rocks of waste that were brought over, you were brought over, to a rock that was going to be useful to the Lord. But you weren't useful to the Lord in the state that you were in. There's some things that needed to happen until you, before you could be used for the Lord's work, before you could be fitted into the temple. And it was the sanctification process. You and your rough form, you were chiseled upon. There were pieces that were chipped away. You were being squared off and smoothed out. And it was a very violent process. And if you're a born-again believer, some of the things were pretty hard. Some of the things were easy to let go. Some of the things you held on for quite a while. Some other things you kind of played a tug-of-war with God. He pulled them away, and you tried to pull them back into your life. And for all of us, there's still things that we're struggling with that struggle never really ends. But what is God doing? Well, he's doing the same thing that the Masons did when the, when the temple was being built. Because God didn't want the sound of a chisel up on the temple mount. And so all of that had to be done down below. And so they would be fitting it, chipping it, sanding it, and all, and bringing it up to the temple mount so that it could be fit in place. And right now we're being chipped upon and chiseled upon and sanded upon so that when we go into the presence of the Lord, we'll just fit right in. Fit right in. 
And so today, just giving of God of myself to that process that through studies, I'm revealed of who I am. And there might be, well, you know what? That's kind of a rough area of my life that needs to be sanded down. Or maybe I've got this part of my life, this, this thing that is involved or a part of my life that needs to be chipped away. And God's working all of this process out and I have to be open to the process. The ultimate barometer that God uses here, at least, is sexual immorality that <clears throat> seems to be so prevalent in our lives today. The ultimate acts of joining of the flesh. And I am not to be of that mindset to join myself with the world or the things of the world, but to be separated from those things. And again, we've got so many roots of sexual immorality that have crept into our lives. Again, turn on the TV today, <clears throat> and a lot of those things wouldn't have been in the movies back in the 50s and the 60s, and now they're beamed into our, beamed into our living room. And a lot of these things we become so... Well, we just become so calloused to. And then we have these award shows that are going on, the Academy Awards or you know whatever the latest award show is. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but a lot of this stuff is just based upon sexual immorality or immorality of some sort. But, I mean, you look at the top ten movies, and I have a clue what they were. The top ten movies, they were more than likely all, the theme of them was probably based on some sort of sin issue. I mean, if you look at the movies, go look at the list. And I don't even know what the list is, but I tell you, they were based upon, the theme of that movie was based upon some sort of sin issue. And we spend our time entertaining ourselves with these things. And not only are they affecting us, but they're affecting the other people within our household. And we've got to be of the mindset of the things that we're looking at and the things that we're watching. Because, you know, when you get to something, it is entertaining, but unfortunately, that's the hook. And we can so easily overlook some of the things. And I've just kind of made it my own personal policy. If something isn't allowed in my house, as far as how my kids act or the things that my wife and I say or whatever, we don't entertain ourselves with that as well. If something is a bad language, why would I not allow my kids or my grandkids or myself and my wife to use that language? Why would I allow somebody to entertain myself in my home to use that language? And so we're not trying to be a, a legalist, but I just want to please God. I want to be well-pleasing to God. See, I used to be in construction. And, and you may not know this, but construction guys, they don't always use good language. Matter of fact, the majority of the things that they say is bad language, and I used to be part of that. I was never a big cusser myself, but nonetheless, I did use the language. And now my ultimate fear is, is that I'm at this pulpit, and something like that through the depravity of my soul would come out. <laughs> and Nora is just sitting here waiting for it. <laughs> Nora, that was supposed to be just like kind of a quiet time for contemplation, not laughter. <laughs> but that is a fear that I have. He's still laughing. <laughs> that is a fear that I have. Now, it's not a big thing that I struggle with, but it's just a fear that I have because what would it do? I mean, if I start using that language up here, it's going to discount everything that I've said that day. It'll disqualify me from being used by the Lord. I mean, you just throw that message out if that was truly happening. And so just because of that, Lord, I, I want to be sanctified. I want to be removed from the filth of the world because, Lord, I want to be well-pleasing to you. 
If I love God, secondly, with all of my heart, soul, and mind, then I need to glorify Him in my life. Verses 4 and 5, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We accomplish this by possessing our own vessel. This is what I'm responsible. I'll encourage you, but ultimately, I'm responsible for this vessel and my wife's vessel. The two have become one. And so we're responsible for one another. Why? Because a vessel is known by what, by what it contains. I can give you a glass of water and you'll look favorably upon that glass. But if I showed you this glass that I was using to bail out my toilet because I'm changing out a toilet, you'll see that glass in a different light. Matter of fact, if you came over to my house and I was bailing water out of the toilet and the next time you came over and I gave you the same glass for a drink of water, even if I told you I ran it through the dishwasher, you're not going to look at that vessel very favorably. And so this vessel, I've got to consider what does it contain? What are the things that I am bringing into this vessel? Because sooner or later, again, those things are going to come out. And I need to consider that very seriously because what I possess, what I possess is the Holy Spirit. What I possess is the gospel of God. What I need to possess is the love of God. And all of those things need to be prevalent within my life so that those are things that when people come to this vessel, that they're able to partake of. And so... Are you a vessel of sanctification and honor or passion and lust? Thirdly, if I love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and all of my mind, I will be exemplifying Christ to others. Verses 6 through 8. That no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we, are fore, as we forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so, I want to close today with a more specific list on what it takes to please God. Just kind of went and did a search in the scriptures. What will it take from me, for you, to be well-pleasing to God? Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Do you make it your aim or make it your priority to be well-pleasing to God? It's real easy right now in church because this doesn't really count. I mean, just because you're here, I mean, you're sitting in a chair. If you start acting up, you know, we'll, we'll have you removed. I mean, if you start cursing, we'll have you removed. If you start watching pornography or something, we'll have you removed. But how about when you leave here? Is it your aim when you leave? Is, is it your passion when you leave here to be well-pleasing to God? What is it that you are aiming for in this life? Evaluating your dreams and your aspirations, are they directed towards the Lord? Now, your dreams and aspirations can be for, you know, whatever your goals may be, but is God included in that? Is God included in that? And are you using those things to glorify, truly glorify the Lord? Secondly, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, 
well-pleasing to God. A sacrifice, well, for the born-again believer, it does not include death. It includes living for Him. It's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, if Paul's going to beg something of you, ought you not to listen to it? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or because God is merciful, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. See, the Jewish mind, it was always about killing the sacrifice. But for us, well, the ultimate sacrifice died so that we can live for Him. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, holy means separated as well, holy and acceptable to Him. And he goes on to say, this is your reasonable service. This is the least that you can do. So don't be conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. And so a figurative death, that I am to die to that old man, again, comes to the concept of, are you born again? Have you died to the old man? And now are you living to the Lord in your life? Dying to the world and to the flesh in a life of serving Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And as I've said so many times, a child that does not obey his parents will not grow up to be a man or a woman who obeys the Lord. And so we need to train up our children in the way that they should go. So if it's well-pleasing to the Lord for children to obey, how much more so is it well-pleasing to the Lord that we teach our children, that we train up our children? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleasing. This has to do simply with being a godly and giving person, allowing your Christianity to be seen and to be experienced by others. A good Christian in God's sight is one who is obedient to His will. He's loving God, but He's also a giving person. He's one who helps with the needs of others. He's others-orientated. And so Paul's excited about what's going on in this church, that he was just there for a small period of time, but he sees this church doing the things that a church is supposed to do. And so we've got to consider ourselves. Are we doing the things that a church is supposed to do? Not simply entertaining people, but are we doing the work that God has set forth? Now, the leadership can lay out all the programs and everything that we can to head us in that direction, but it's got to be every member of the church having a desire and passion to be obedient to the Lord and the things of the Lord, to exercise their spiritual gifting and to move forward, just to move forward, to move forward in a time when there's so much opposition. I'll close with this last verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Well, how did he just close out the section of Scripture we're talking about? Therefore, verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as I'm a vessel of the Holy Spirit, I need to keep this vessel. I need to keep it unspotted from the world, but also dedicated to the Lord and the things of the Lord. 
And so I just want to leave you with that thought. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? You don't have to do it and be accountable to me. We're accountable to the Lord. But these are the things that God has asked of us. These are the things that God has commanded of us. Because when I'm doing those things, then I'm able to love God. When I'm doing those things, then I'm able to love my brethren as I love myself. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning once again. And Lord, we can whittle everything down just to these two commandments. And Father, we can so just assume that we are doing these things. But Father, I pray that we would truly take inventory of our lives, that we would know that we are doing these things. That Father, I would look at every aspect of my life and I would make the determination of truly, Lord, am I sacrificially giving of myself based upon your sacrificial death for myself? And then, Lord, secondly, am I sacrificially giving of myself as you sacrificially gave of yourself for me? Am I doing that for my brothers and sisters? And, and Lord, I don't really know who brothers and sisters are, even those future brothers and sisters, those who are of the world, that they may be saved as well. Lord, this is the essence of what the church is to be. And I pray, Father, that you would make this the nature and the essence of what our church is. And so, Father, I pray, as much as depends upon each person here, that we would inspect our lives, we would see the areas that need to change, and, Father, we would move in your glorious direction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?